Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. A lot of people think sponsorship is a complex beast, that it's a hard job. But not our guest on today's show. Jackie Fast founded Slingshot Sponsorship in 2010 from her apartment with only a laptop, basically because no one else would give her a job in sponsorship. Silly fool then because Jackie grew Slingshot from a startup to an international award-winning agency with a head office in London as well as offices in Singapore and Oslo. And it's not so much that Jackie thinks sponsorship is just easy, it's more that she seems to have started a personal crusade to help people who she believes are making stupid mistakes that hurt their sponsorship programs on both sides of the fence. And recently, after selling Slingshot in 2017 to the marketing group, Jackie wrote a book, Pinpoint, How Challenging the Norm is the Only Route to Success in Selling Sponsorship. So, I grabbed a copy, I reached out to Jackie to position coming on the show, and I said I'd be in contact once I'd finished reading the book highlighter and red pen in hand, off I set. It didn't take long to figure out exactly where Jackie stands. Middle of the fifth page, she proclaims that because of a lack of advancement, everyone is failing at sponsorship. Jackie also says that many of the key learnings from the book are counterintuitive and go against the long-held beliefs in the industry. Now, that's pretty heavy and it's confronting, but more on that from Jackie later in the show. Welcome to episode 56 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Loyston, and it's awesome to have you listening into the show. And what's also awesome is shout-outs. We love giving them, and boy, do we have a few good ones to get through this time around. The first is from Jane Robinson, who was recently moved to Teg Live, which is a dynamic and diverse promoter of live content in music, sport, family entertainment, and exhibitions. And Jane said... The podcasts are great. It's the only podcast I religiously listen to. Now, this is a super cool story. Jane laughed when I gave a little bit of a shout out a few episodes back to Muhammad Rayhan because he was Jane's intern at Bicycle New South Wales and Jane set up the intern program and really wanted to make it meaningful for interns, owning a whole project from idea through to concept on event day. Now, the coolest part about all this is that Jane came up with the concept after listening to Jonathan Prosser from the Cronulla Sharks in an episode from back in February 2017. The program has been really successful and it saw 10 amazing students work with Bicycle New South Wales, one of which ended up being employed two days a week around his uni days just because he was so good. And such a cool story and it blows my mind and it puts a smile on everyone's face at Sponsor when we hear about that, how the podcast has brought ideas to life because other people are learning from our guests. Great job, Jane. Next to get in touch was Kristen Finnegan, Director of Kristen Finnegan Event Management. And Kristen is also the event manager at Taz Racing. And Kristen wrote, Hi, Daniel, I've recently discovered your fab podcast that I binge listen to on my trips around Tasmania to meet with potential and current sponsors. Thanks for listening, Kristen. The beautiful scenery of Tasmania paired with this podcast sounds amazing. Finally, Adam Sandham, Partnership Account Manager at Tickford Racing, dropped me a line to say, simple line, keep up the great work. Thanks for the podcast. They are great. Thanks, Adam. Hope all is well at Tickford Racing. Now, also joining us on the show to discuss his latest blog is our MD, Mark Thompson, who has written about the keys to using talent in sponsorship. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, we're here to talk about talent. What's a, a special <laughs> not, talent not, that you have that people don't know that you have? Share a, something. A special talent I have. Hmm. I have a rare ability to suffer injuries that only really old people suffer, even though I'm half their age. Like a broken hip? Hip replacements, torn patella tendons, you know, all sorts of weird stuff. Do you want to know what mine is? I have amazing reflexes. Like, they're, they're borderline superhero power reflexes. Okay, I'd, I'd beg to uh, but, challenge we, <laughs> But we, we're not actually here to talk about our special talents, whether it's, you know, singing, dancing, reflexes, or uh, sustaining injuries. But we're here to talk about talent in sponsorship because it struck you as an important topic at a recent industry event you went to, didn't it? Yeah, and then it actually, funnily enough, as I, so this um, topic sort of came into my head through an industry event, which was just a really cool roundtable. And then as I was halfway through writing it, um, 
as I you might you can probably tell by some of my blogs I write them in bits and pieces, <laughs> not in one setting. Um, I went to another event where it really was the the number one topic actually for the whole conference. It ended up being the most engaging topic, and it was exactly what I was writing about. So it helped me finish it because I was asked the question by somebody to write this. So I was asked the question around, um, you know, is it effective? How is it used best? Um, and you know, do, could you write something about it? and talk about it on the show and so it, it, it actually it challenged me I've, I've used talent my whole career um either on in a sporting context using athletes or in a charitable access um, um viewpoint using you know people that have benefited from charitable purposes and then come out the other side and telling their stories because we are talking engage. we should draw the distinction while we started off with a little bit of joke about personal talents we are yeah. actually talking about talent as in uh, athletes or yep. for one of spokespeople, a, spokespeople yep. that, that we can use and we can leverage in a sponsorship, can't we? Exactly right. And, um, you know, one of the, the I kind of took a pivot point on this and, a, and just a, a specific vertical on, on the roundtable. And the roundtable was talking about, you know, fan engagement, athletic engagement. And then it got onto EBAs. Um, and, and then how do you sort of from a from an individual sports point of view esports um, world surf league where the athletes are driving the engagement predominantly the athletes make money off their own they're, endorsements they are they're almost their own brand if not exactly they are right. their own brand they are and so how to then how can the the governing body you ut- still utilize that without treading on toes and and cutting cutting into bits of the pie so that's where it sort of got me thinking around, you know, how do you use talent effectively and how can you use it to better engage your brands? And one thing that really stuck to me because then there was one brand at the table who then spoke up at the end and said, you know, I, I still think that people don't quite get why we sponsor. You know, we sponsor to engage, we sponsor to access and we sponsor to measure and we don't actually sponsor for the thrill of going to a sporting event. Or seeing our name on the signs. Exactly right. So, you know, the way to do that is to to really understand why. And, and for those that do want to use talent, so those brands that do see value in, the, in talent, then, you know, it's sort of, it's important to understand the power of that talent if used correctly because it's not just a... Oh, three hours of a of a coach appearance. Or oh, a, we better or a, use it. We better use Coming it. Or we sandwich better, in the boardroom. Or we better give it to them. If you're a rights holder, just go. Do you want to use your your talent? Here's the guys available. I mean, that is so valueless. Like, these are the three people that we can afford to give you the time because th- those three athletes or you know spokespeople may not even be interested in that brand. They may not be interested in the topic they are there to speak about. They may not be interested in the event they're getting engaged in, and therefore they're. Um, participation and their engagement levels are not going to be at peak. Because we talk about alignment of a rights holder with a sponsor and whether that's a good fit. This yep. seems like it's the next level. You can't just make sure the fit's there at the organisational level and then wheel in spokespeople or talent or players or coaches and, and just assume that that fit follows through. Because those personalities may have different alignment and views, political views, brand views, all those sorts of things that we need to juggle. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that at the moment in the press. But the the other thing is that for anybody that's actually worked within a sporting environment that I um, you know, have, have got a background in, the athletes themselves, they really like to do a good job. They don't like to look like a stupid footballer or somebody that's unengaged or rude. You know, these these guys are highly, you know, successful people in their field and they're successful because they pay attention to detail and they put effort in and they take pride in what they do. And that doesn't change if they walk off the playing field if you engage them properly. Hmm. And so I've worked with a number of athletes that have been quite anal in saying, I need to know who the, who I'm speaking to, why I'm talking to them, what we're doing, what you expect from me, what time I need to be there, what time I can leave. What should I wear? And that's not just so they can get in and out. That's so they can actually put their best foot forward for their own personal brand when they're representing the other brand because they actually value what they're doing. So, you know, before we dive in, I, I wrote about three um, sort of underlying points that you probably need to get your head around before you actually move into it. Yep. All right. So let's jump into them. Number one. Alignment. So 
as I said, you know, I stole ta- your thunder a little bit there when I wasn't watching my notes. <laughs> but alignment is important. It was, it is, and and I'm glad you uh, you naturally moved towards it. But uh, you know, talent, you know, that they, they are influencers, right? And then in a partnership activation, you know, they, there's so much they can do. So in a hospitality suite setting, they can bring it alive. They can they can draw attention to your brand through you know advertising or or a shoot or something like that. If you've got an event, they can draw attendees to it. Um, but only if you've got the right talent with you. It's, it's as I just said, it's no good just saying send me the three players for three hours and then we're done. You know, you, you, it'll pay for you as a right holder to sit down with with your say. Let's stick to a sporting content. Sit down with your roster or your team management and go. Okay, here's our suite of partners. These are their objectives. Now, who on the roster has an alignment of interest that would actually have a post-career interest in learning about this or just has a has a political or social um, appreciation for what these partners do because they're the ones that we should be trying to, to drag into helping us with these brands because it has mutual benefit. Or even has a, a, an existing relationship with staff that are there. Correct. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. All right, number one, alignment. Yep, number two, communication. So if the alignment's there, then you're, you're far more likely to get talent interested and engaged. So the next job is to communicate ahead of time, you know, what the brand wants from them do they need to prepare anything what they need to wear you know this is important because they have to wear a tie well it's and again it's it's on the surface that looks like somebody moaning but that's like if i wear a polo shirt and everyone else is wearing ties i'm going to feel really uncomfortable Uh, uh, overdressed is always fine underdressed is seriously concerning exactly right and and the talent themselves feel that right so they feel like they're then being treated differently which which they don't want so communication so there's nothing that these guys hate more than being thrown in the deep end and not being prepared all right alignment communication number three and then the context so this is you know there's no point using it talent for the sake of it there needs to be a driver so some sort of goal some sort of objective um you know the context around how they are actually the talent is creating and driving more value to the activation and they need to know that and perhaps even be fed back what the results and the outcomes were so that next time they're, they're more motivated to do a, a really good job again. I think an important point there is that, and without throwing stones too much, we know people just throw things into sponsorship proposals and, and packages and sometimes that's a, uh, a player or a spokesman appearance and come and talk to a boardroom or come to our fate or whatever it is. We need to make sure that we as sponsorship managers are having the conversation with the rights holder because they might have had a good idea six, nine months ago, but yeah. we're further down the path now. Let's understand we're going to send Bob or Mary down to the, the the staff lunch or whatever it might be. What are you guys hoping to get out of it? So it's not just you saying, oh, this is the brand and this is what they do and is their alignment. It's also you're playing the middleman, really. Yeah, exactly right. And, and that kind of is a really good segue into the final part of my 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 thought and is this, this is, the most important thing well this is absolutely the most important thing and this was the missing part of my my blog which was what came together when i um, was at the partnership huddle and and i had the fortune of having lunch with grant elliott who harry javelin the um <laughs> the, the new zealand black cap cricket player um one of only three people to score 50s in semi-final and final of the world cup wow um and and he he was actually there as a brand, as his own business, he's now a philanthropist. He's, he's now sort of he's got a startup and he's a philanthropist, but he uses his cricket profile to help drive that. And and he then was talking to me at lunchtime, but then he actually had a, a sort of a, a panel session, a masterclass session, around knowing your why. So knowing your why as an athlete, and then how that transcends into knowing your why as a brand, because an athlete is a brand, as you just said earlier. You're not but, just an athlete anymore. Yeah, that's right. But also. A brand is a brand. And so knowing your why. So why is it nice to have a famous ambassador or talent at your event to help promote your product? Knowing your, you know, why is that player the right one? Why do you need players there at all? Like, <laughs> so so actually asking the question Just around for decoration. why and knowing the why will help you understand A, what your objectives are and B, who the right people are to help you achieve them through your own sort of little value set of 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 access to players and, and if you've done all the steps earlier correctly you're going to end up with the right answer there and so you know once you can articulate the, you know the, the points of, that we've spoken about the talent's f- way more likely to buy in and help you achieve what you want 
What strikes me about this blog, this piece of advice is sometimes we can get quite complex and we don't necessarily have all the tools or skills at our disposal to actually execute it. This is really, really simple, easy to follow, pragmatic advice that will generate a disproportionate amount of value in your sponsorship partnerships. Mate, absolutely. You know, our business is all about technology and, and, you know, using a really cool piece of technology to be better at what you do. But this is not about technology. This is about operationally just being good at your job from a fundamentals point of view. Very good. And if you want to go through those steps, alignment, communication, context, and the final most important point, knowing the why, just head along to sponsor.net, head to the blog section where you can access all that information. Any trips coming up? Mate, I'm, I've got a big one actually. I've got three weeks in the US from the 7th of May. So we're doing uh, three days in Atlanta. Disneyland, yeah. Cape Canaveral. So I'm, so I'm going to, yeah, so yeah, very I'll, good. I'll tell you. So I'm doing three days in Atlanta, which yep. where I can go to some fun parks. Yeah. Um, I'm going You'd to, be scared to go on roller coasters, I can um, tell. <laughs> I don't fit. Um, then I'm off to San Francisco for four days. Then we're into Chicago. Yeah. Huh. And then off to uh, to New York for a week for leaders. So if you are going to be around leaders, New York, um, or off, Disneyland, or Disneyland, or at the a New York Giants game, get in contact. Boy, get, get in touch. Buy yeah. the listeners a coffee, a beer. Say yeah, I'll, I'll be with Eddie Fitzgibbon, who's our uh, who's our US guy, and he can buy the beers. Very good. All right, safe travels. No worries. Cheers, mate. Jackie Fast is an author, sponsorship trailblazer, ESA board director and chair of the ESA Sponsorship Awards. Jackie founded Slingshot Sponsorship in 2010 from her apartment with only a laptop, basically because no one else would give her a job in sponsorship. And recently, after selling Slingshot in 2017 to the marketing group, Jackie wrote a book, Pinpoint, How Challenging the Norm is the Only Route to Success in Selling Sponsorship. So I grabbed a copy. I reached out to Jackie to position coming on the show and said I'd be in contact once I'd finished reading it. Now, Jackie was born in Canada, and while she is based in London, she spends a lot of time overseas for work, especially speaking engagements. And it was from the Ukraine, having just arrived in her hotel room, that I caught up with Jackie to discuss the book and her general views on the sponsorship industry. Here's Jackie. Jackie Fast, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions just to help the audience get to know you, get to know Jackie just a little bit better. If you could be anyone else in the world for a day, who would you be and why? Good. Um, I would probably like to be Santa Claus, actually. You never said fictional or not. Um, I would love to be Santa Claus. I think that is just kind of the best job of the world. Getting to eat chocolate all the time, sitting in the North Pole, that would be mine. Very good. Second icebreaker question is, what, Jackie, what was your first ever job? Um, my first job was working at a farm where I picked raspberries and I was terrible at it. Um, and the it was my very first paycheck and my very first paycheck I remember to this day was 327 Canadian dollars for two months of work. Wow. I, I was really bad. I think it might have been Stuart Ramsey. I might have to check my notes there, but I think he said he spent one day picking strawberries as his first ever job. He said he never went back and he doesn't really like strawberries. So I'm curious about whether you like raspberries. Love raspberries. It's my favorite berry. It's probably my favorite fruit. Yeah, love love raspberry. But that's also why I was terrible at my job. I probably ate half of them. <laughs> Jackie, tell us the story of how Slingshot was launched. I imagine it was well planned. Everything was perfect. You had a huge and successful launch party with champagne and red carpet. And then you're off on your journey conquering the sponsorship world. God, I wish. Um, no, it wasn't like that at all. It was very, very much less glamorous. I, uh, I actually set up sponsorship because I couldn't get a job in sponsorship. So I'd applied to every single agency in London um, and nobody would even meet with me, let alone interview me, let alone give me a job. Um, and I kind of had it with my boss at the time and, and basically didn't have a choice. So I set up Slingshot in my bedroom with uh, a hope and a prayer uh, and, and you know, fortunately it worked out. I wanted to get this question in early to help set the scene for people in terms of how you see the sponsorship industry and because it really resonated with me in the book because I see a lot of people, for want of a better phrase maybe, people paying lip service to it because it is trendy to say it. But what's your biggest pet peeve about the sponsorship industry? 
God, I have many, if I'm honest. Um, I think, think one of the biggest, I guess, pet peeves about the industry and maybe the people, but also just maybe the industry is everybody's quite complacent um, and relies on lots of excuses for actually what is a really amazing, very fast changing and growing industry. You know, it's outpacing advertising. The world has never been more ripe for sponsorship campaigns. Um, and yet we still, you know, rely heavily and sell heavily logo based sponsorship deals. And it's, it's a shame, really, because actually I think the industry as a whole could do so much more. You're no longer the managing director at Slingshot Sponsorship, having left late last year to pursue writing and other interests following the company's sale to the marketing group. And as I've mentioned, I invited you on the show after reading your recent book, Pinpoint, how challenging the norm is the only route to success in selling sponsorship. What was your reason or, or your goal for writing a book? Well, honestly, I didn't expect it to take as long as it did. And I initially wrote it. Well, it was, it was a combination, actually. Um, in my, you know, brief time working in sponsorship, or at least running, running a business and kind of like working all day and only thinking about sponsorship for every waking moment, you know, I learned a lot of things that I myself didn't know. Um, and, you know, before we came upon the title that we did come upon, we initially were talking about um, calling it six counterintuitive, counterintuitive um, tips for selling sponsorship because there are six things that people do instinctively and it actually hurts their chances of securing a sponsorship sponsor and it's really I found it really fascinating that it didn't matter what type of an opportunity you were it didn't matter what type of a person you were it didn't matter which country you were um, and everybody made these same mistakes so I wrote the book as kind of like a help I guess in terms of I just kept seeing and speaking to people that were going around the same problems the same challenges and actually, it's relatively simple. And I think lots of people kind of look at sponsorship sales as kind of an impossible beast when actually, if you just do some small, small things, you will see a lot more success. Um, so I wrote the book kind of as that. Um, it also, you know, I was, I was probably at the time wanting to sell Slingshot. I don't know if I had, I think I had a couple of deals on the table and I was really wanting to do something different. And so you know, obviously it's not a legacy, but I guess it was my kind of lasting, you know, it was my last learning things that I've learned to, to kind of give back really. I know the book is all about challenging people and new ways of thinking and approaching sponsorship, growing from those common mistakes you keep seeing people making. How has the book been received? Because I'm curious whether you think people really do want to change and be better at sponsorship or whether it's just easier for them to maintain the status quo? I, I honestly think that's almost not even the right question. I don't think they have a choice. Um, you know, they are going to have to change or they will not sell sponsorship. And people are so heavily reliant on sponsorship now. You know, 15 years ago, sponsorship used to be an add-on. It used to be extra revenue that you got in. You could kind of use it. or was your problem. Now, actually, it, it's a make or break for music festivals, for events, for publications. If you don't get sponsorship, you don't have a business. So if people don't kind of understand and appreciate that they need to change the structure of their rights holders, manage their brands differently, they won't have a business. They'll be out of business, quite frankly. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's just, it's a struggle. And I think, so I think people do want to change. I think it's hard to change though as well, because the information is not readily available. You know, my book is, I think the tip of an iceberg, you know, it's not, it's not as in, as in depth as if I was sitting with you one-on-one -on -one going through how you can improve your sponsorship. But even to this day, my book is the only sponsorship sales book ever written. So you know, if you wanted to change, there are very few avenues for people to do better. We know you've got to be a little bit sensationalist when you're an author. And in the book, you said that you believe everyone is failing at sponsorship. I think that's it's a bit harsh, especially if rights holders are delivering what the sponsoring brands want. What's your thinking behind that view, though? What are some of the main reasons you believe they fail at sponsorship? I don't feel that that's sensationalist. I truly <laughs> do feel that everybody is, everybody, and maybe failing is a little bit of a strong word, but I don't believe that anybody is living 
living up to the potential of what sponsorship can do or it can be. You know, sponsorship as an industry has grown because consumer preferences for how they engage with the world around them has changed, not because the industry has changed. The industry has changed because they have had to. Now, if you took any other kind of different industry that was a bit more forward thinking in their approach to growing market share of which our industry is not, um, you know, you wouldn't see this leg, you know, more people would be doing sponsorship a lot better. And, and that's what I mean. I do genuinely think that everybody is not living up to the potential. Interestingly, as an agency founder, you believe that agencies are financially incentivized to promote a limited model of sponsorship, probably plays into that potential that you were just talking about then. What do you mean by that? So bigger agencies, when you talk about big rights holders, so you're kind of like 1 million plus type opportunities are typically managed by either advertising agencies or really big sponsorship agencies. Now, when they play stuff in terms of ads or creative or television, they obviously get a kickback from bulk buying in terms of that's how agencies work. It's just in, inherent with their business. It's not a bad thing. It's just inherent with their business. And so it's, it's, there's a reason, you know, when you're, if you're managing a brand, you look at the bottom line, like what is this client delivered back to the agency? And if you're able to upsell creative, able to get kickbacks on broadcast, you would obviously pay, you know, it's just, you're, you're incentivized differently. Um, and that's what I mean by that. It's not, it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just, that's how they're incentivized. And that limits them? It, it makes it difficult to change or look at other platforms that could be more relevant um, and better for brands. Now, this is not to say, and I think it's really important to note, this is not for me to say that, you know, don't sponsor the Olympics because a million other things are better. The, the Olympics are great for certain brands. I'm not saying that. Football is great for certain brands. What I'm saying is there's an over-reliance on putting brands to platforms like that because of this incentivization through an agency with kickbacks and the bottom line. The industry is changing. As you said before, a lot of rights holders and even brands, they're going to have to change if they're going to survive and, and as you said, reach that potential that we don't think people are quite yet. And we know that slapping a logo on properties is not real sponsorship. Are there examples where big brands have actually pushed back on that type of just put a logo on things, please? Yeah, loads. Um, so, you know, one of the, uh, I can use UK examples really, but, you know, there's been a number of examples over the last three years where brands have stopped or ended their big sponsorship logo branding deals a lot earlier. So we have something called, um, well, we called them Boris bikes, but they're bikes that you could pedal around the city. Great for tourists. Barclays had a really long term. I think it was a seven year deal. They actually bought out of the last year because it wasn't doing anything for them because it was just a branding exercise. Vodafone, who had sponsored a team for years in Formula One, re recently pulled out of that huge historic legacy sponsorship and they've invested in something called Vodafone First. So there are loads of examples. I consult with a really big insurance company that is really trying to figure out how they can get out of their kind of long-standing logo sponsorships and into something a lot more engaged. And how do you do that authentically um, without obviously hurting the rights holder and the partnership and all of that stuff? But brands are changing massively. Okay, so Vodafone, you, you used Vodafone as an example there, and I've ridden those uh, Barclays. Were they Barclays, the bikes that were in? Uh, did Santander take them over? They did. I've been for a couple of pedals around London on them. Good fun. But you mentioned Vodafone as an example. Now, they would have still had most, if not all, of whatever that huge budget was for, for Formula One and probably made my eyes water. They probably still had that budget to spend on achieving their marketing goals. Do you know what their next move was? Was it still in sponsorship but just logo-driven or did they do something in-house or...? So it's called Vodafone First. It's an online uh, content curation platform. So you can go online and actually what they do is they champion people doing things for the first time. So it reaches a different demographic. It still talks about them, you know, supporting people through innovation and information and all of that stuff. So it reaches all their objectives, but it's a fraction of the cost of what they were spending on Formula One. So, Jackie, what about if a brand doesn't have access to as much customer data as Vodafone has, but really they can't actually find easily a rights holder that they feel will give them access 
to their target audience so that they can sponsor and then get access to that target audience? What sort of options are open to them? Well, I think that's like a, a scenario that almost never happens. I think there's probably like a hundred rights holders for one brand, quite frankly. Um, and, and I probably argue that the brand isn't working hard enough to really look at what else is out there. But it does. It, it, it requires investment. It requires resource to kind of look at opportunities. But you know, change a change from like 15 years ago is you, there are all these online platforms and online networks and online niches that you can now utilize so you don't actually have to sponsor a physical event you don't have to sponsor a physical football game you can sponsor copper 90 you don't have to sponsor you know a millennial music festival you can go and speak to somebody called purdipi um there are like a whole bunch of different options available and and i would say you know I'm probably there are probably a hundred rights holders for every one brand. We speak a lot to sponsorship managers who struggle with pricing their assets or benefits in a way that gives them confidence to talk about it in front of sponsors, potential sponsors, and brands. It is. Do you think it's important to get it right? But is it actually a case of if you don't get it right, there's an opportunity cost in either maybe overpricing or underpricing assets? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first start is, do you price your assets? Because I would probably say nine times out of 10, if you take out the, you know, more professional platforms, nine times out of 10, people are like finger in the air or, oh, we should get a hundred grand. Let's sell a sponsorship for a hundred grand with actually no consideration for what they're actually providing a brand. And that blows my mind. Um, But taking that out of the equation, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's not so. There is such a thing about yeah, over and underpricing and missing out of an opportunity. But, but quite frankly, I also feel that, and you kind of touched on it already. If you don't have a clear pricing structure, the brand knows that you then can't have a conversation about stuff. The person who's selling it doesn't feel confident in it. So what's the point? Like, just don't even bother. Like, I I honestly feel like if people don't take the time to understand their assets, understand the value of those assets, then don't invest in putting money behind or people power behind trying to flog this because nobody's going to buy it. People are too smart now. To determine the total value of the entire package though, in the book you say you need to simply add up the value of the individual assets and I hope I'm not being too forward here but I kind of thought that that was maybe a little bit short-sighted for rights holders to do that. I mean, wouldn't the value that you should be positioning actually be in what the brand can activate from those assets and instead that total value is really just the cost to access them rather than the value that they can access? So that's not correct. And the example, I I would strongly argue against that. The example that I give is when you go to a grocery store let's say me and you're going shopping um, and we both have different baskets you go you pick up a chicken a leek a potato some onions I pick up exactly the same basket now you go home and you cook this amazing cock van I go home I burn the chicken I drop the leek on the floor and my dog eats it and so I'm just stuck eating a carrot stick now do you think that you should pay more because you're getting more value out of the ingredients that you bought or that I should pay less because I don't know what I'm doing with them. You don't. You don't. No, no industry in the world, no store in the world would ever sell stuff like that. You sell what it is that you are buying. How you utilize those things is really down to your creative ability, your what you've got in terms of your roster of activation and budget and all of that stuff. But it doesn't change what you're selling. I'm going to meet you halfway. How about I put this on the table that it's – the position, if we if we take that supermarket example, we see lots of supermarkets doing this at the moment where they're creating content to help inspire you to create that great chicken dish rather than burning the chicken and dropping half of it on the floor, that it is the rights holder's job to help inspire the brands about what the value they can actually create out of it rather than saying, here's the stuff, go away, everybody gets the same access. Can we meet halfway on 100- that? Well, that 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 a hundred percent. But like, this is where I, where we get into this idealistic thing. Like, in an ideal world, absolutely, rights should be rights holders should be doing, and the successful rights holders typically are that way. You know, 
I was so successful at selling sponsorship because that's what I did. I really kind of worked with the brand to come up with the activation idea, all of that stuff. And, you know, as a result, sold the sponsorship. But that is way in advance. Like I'm talking about the fact that nine out of 10 rights holders don't even know how to price their sponsorship opportunities, let alone, do you know what I mean? And so let's, let's like, let's kind of start with one step rather than thinking we have to go the whole hog, but you're absolutely hundred percent right. We generally look at sponsorship and how we can receive it as either being cash, value in kind or contra, or a combination of value in kind and cash. If we're a rights holder, do you think we should be looking more widely at how brands can actually help us over and above either giving us cash or value in kind? Yeah, I think I think there's just a real lack. You know, whenever I speak with rights holders, they're always like, cash. Just need cash, need cash, need cash. And, you know, I always kind of question, okay, well, what do you need the money for? And they're like, oh, well, we're going to spend it on this, that, and the other. This, that, and the other typically includes marketing. Um, And, you know, marketing, sell more tickets, all that stuff. And actually, hey, funny enough, brands typically have big marketing spends and all, like, and, and massive programs and promotion. And actually, one of the biggest problems that, brands and rights holders have is you can't get a brand over the line because the the cash thing is so high, but actually brands have access to all this marketing that they're more than happy to give away. And so it really needs to start looking at, you know, if we go back to why we do sponsorship in the first place, it's supposed to be a partnership. You're supposed to work together. The whole thing about the whole being greater than the sum of its parts, all of that jazz. And, you know, you're taking, you're kind of striding away from it. Everybody's like, get the money on the table, get the money. Don't understand how much money, don't understand why, but just get the money. And, you know, it just defeats the purpose, quite frankly. You were talking there about, we talk about sponsorships should be partnerships. And, and, and if you're looking past the cash and the contra and how you might actually work together on certain things, it actually gives you a bigger story to tell together around the positivity of that partnership, doesn't it? Yeah, and you're going to, be more successful. So, you know, like, again, my book isn't, my book isn't rocket science. It's not like, it's not kind of super advanced. It's like basic stuff, but there's certain things like, you know, you should know why the brand is sponsoring you again, nine times out of 10 rights holders. Don't ask the question. They sell the sponsorship, move on to the next. So how are you really supposed to be creating a partnership when you don't even understand what the other parties, per, uh, what what their kind of objectives are? It just, it blows my mind. And these and these small, simple things like asking a question, you know, um, change changes the result of a, of a partnership deal. And, and part of that is doing some research and finding out who your ideal sponsor is going to be. And we all know we should determine who our ideal sponsor is, and that makes sense in theory, but how do you actually do it? What are some of the important things that a rights holder needs to look at and determine that lead to the answer of this is the ideal partner for me or they fit into this group of businesses? So I think what's the most important, and I think where people go wrong, and this actually isn't in my book, is um, rights holders rarely look at their USP. So, you know, if you, let's just, because it happens a lot, but to kids, kids with cancer. I'm not saying that this is not a cause that is not important, but like there are, I don't know. I think I last calculated and there's like a thousand charities for kids with cancer. Now, if you don't understand why your sponsorship opportunity for kids with cancer is different than another sponsorship opportunity with the charity that does for kids with cancer, you have no chance in hell right? But you have to understand what is unique to me as a business, what assets are unique to to us as a business. And then when you start understanding what is unique to you, then you can start assessing what, what, what types of brands would want these kind of things. In determining that, here's a tough one for you. If you could only ask a potential sponsor one question in determining whether they're going to be a good fit in the early research stages, what would that question be? What are your objectives? Uh, like a hundred percent. To be honest, you should be able to figure it out from research, but I would always straight up ask somebody, why are you interested in this? Um, and, and to be honest, when we do contracts, so all of this stuff, actually, none of this is in the book, but um, whenever I do a, con- uh, a contract with a new sponsor, we put the objectives in the contract. Um, and, and because, you know, it's just, it's supposed to be, yeah, it's supposed to be really clear. And it's not just about the brand. It's really important for the brand to understand what are your objectives? 
Because if you're just sitting there, we just want your money. Like that's not going to be great. But actually, as a rights holder, you have objectives and you don't know that down the line, the brand might be able to help you reach yours. Maybe it's selling more tickets. Maybe it's reaching new audiences. Maybe in three years time, you want to go launch your event in China. All of these things are important and that's what builds a good partnership. Brand marketers obviously think in terms of the marketing mix and how sponsorship can fit into it to help achieve their goals and objectives. I don't see many sponsorship managers at rights holders approach their work in the context of a brand marketing mix. It is almost as if they treat sponsorship as, as a silo part of marketing. Do you think they should rights holders should be thinking more about the marketing mix when they're talking to brands? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think if you're not thinking about that, then you're already starting off on the wrong foot. Circling back around a little bit, often people think they're doing a good job in sponsorship. And we talked about earlier about how we didn't think people were reaching their potential. Add to that that people often think, and it fits in with the, the, the children's charity cause and your USP, people often think our team or our cause is better than others, so people will want to engage with us. Often that manifests itself as a poor sponsorship proposal. How do you get people to realise their proposals are simply not good enough without being too forward about it and getting them offside? I am totally for it about it and quite <laughs> I thought rude. you might say that. <laughs> Do you know why, though? It's just, it's embarrassing. Like, quite frankly, what I the way that I do it, I've, I've got, so we do this thing called like a boot camp, which I do kind of all over the world. And it's a one-day kind of in-your-face session where I basically show you all the things you're doing wrong in the nicest way that I can do it. Um, but, but more importantly, really show you how to improve. And one of the one of the biggest things is, you know, shitty proposals. And uh, what one of the ways that I show people how shitty their proposal is, is I get their all of their competitor proposals and I put them all on the table. And when you ask people, you know, which ones would you sponsor and why? Like, you wouldn't believe the stuff that comes out of their mouth. Oh, this one's terrible. Oh, who would do this in a word? Oh, the picture is horrible. Oh, there's no melts money. And it's like all of the things that they say, and you pull out their proposal and you're like, now look at your proposal. And it's all of the things that they hate in other people's proposals. So it's just this thing that people really instinctively, you know, it's just, it's like this, it's a phenomena. Like I, I think it's a phenomena this. And like the reason that I wrote, wrote this book is it just blows my mind how much it happens and how frequently it happens and how much it blows other people's mind when they're like, oh yeah, that's right. Why would we do that when I hate how everybody else does it? Jackie, you've worked with a lot of rights holders and helped them, people all over the world with your boot camps, trying to get things right. But at the end of the day, the proposals that you help people with, they're still proposals or, or pitch documents. And once they get to the right person, they can simply not be read. As we sometimes say, they go in the round filing cabinet. I read in the book that most global brands get about, and this blew my mind, 10,000 unsolicited sponsorship proposals. 12,000. 12,000. has gone 12, up. 12,000. Yeah. That'll be in version two. Oh, did two. my book say 10,000? Oh, my slide says 12,000. It's a lot. <laughs> it is. Well, 10,000, 12,000 might be a rounding error. It's a crazy number of unsolicited proposals a year that global brands get. What's the trick to getting them read? Okay, so a persistence. Um, I am... I have had my proposals read by the CEO of biggest corporations, but I work really hard at doing it. But I, you know, I don't, I don't try to reach 150 brands. Like I, I really understand what my USP is for the client that I'm trying to sell for. And I really understand why this is good for one or two brands and I put everything on the line for it and you know I chased down the CEO like a relentless crazy person um, and you know I insist in having a meeting and um, and all of those times that I have done that ironically none of them have bought it but they have really legit reasons and actually ironically one of the ones like they loved me so much I now speak at all of their annual conferences <laughs> and they sponsor some other stuff that we do but it just you know it just wasn't right in terms of the strategic direction they were taking the business and I didn't know that at the time um, but you know 
it's not it's not enough but you also have to have a lot of faith you know and and you also have to be realistic it's not realistic to chase down a hundred brands like that it's not um so i would normally like kind of top tier and bottom tier my my prospects where there would be three or four or five brands that I'm like, this is the perfect fit. And I will do everything I can to get an answer from somebody. Um, and then I do. And then the rest of them, you know, I'll send the proposals or follow up. Um, I usually find, you know, I wouldn't normally say networking really works because you never really know which what, what, well, I guess if, if it's, if you're selling internally, actually, if I was selling, if I was working for a rights holder, like not as an agency, I would network. That's what I did at my last job. And that really made a massive difference because having somebody kind of in your face about it. The other thing to remember is that sponsorship more often than not, isn't working for most people. So, you know, it, you have to, overcome a lot of hurdles it's not like people are like oh sponsorship this is exactly what i want to buy today i thought you'd never most ring like, yeah do you know what i mean most people are like oh sponsorship oh it never works um but a lot of it's based on the other person that's gonna work with you so you know i was really successful when i was selling sponsorship in-house because you know most people believed me you know when i said i understood that they were trying to do and I would ensure that we would get their the people like their target customers in the audience you know people believed I would do that and then I did do that and then they loved me for it and then they spot they bought more sponsorship is it fair to say that you had great faith because it was grounded in the great research you did and the conviction that you had with your plans yeah like honestly I would feel confident selling something that didn't have a price and I didn't know the assets and I didn't know how somebody could activate it I, I wouldn't feel confident and I think a lot of people think I'm like this amazing salesperson and I am not but I work my ass off getting the information and making sure I really understand what I'm doing because I don't want to look like an asshole um so you know I work I work overtime really trying to understand what my property is you know, what is a realistic price point, what other people are selling theirs for. I benchmark it. I really try to make the opportunity as good as I can. I create new assets that work for brands. And I physically, personally, like feel responsible for the deals that I do. Um, and that's why they work, um, because I make them work. And I, you know, I, I would probably say, you know, most of the time I get the right brand. But in the, in the times that I've not gotten the right brand, I still make it work for the brand. <laughs> Jackie, you're you're big on, and rightly so, on ensuring the right fit when a rights holder approaches a brand. We've spoken about it a couple of times here. However, what about the other way around? How, if you're working internally in a rights holder, how would you handle a chairman's choice sponsorship? Either a board member words up a friend or a brand owner or manager is a massive oh. fan and just wants to sponsor and the sponsorship manager and you just kind of have to go with it. How do you handle that? Oh my God. Well, I'd be so grateful to be honest. I like, I know that's not best practice, but my God, if my job is selling something and somebody else just buys it and it shouldn't, they shouldn't buy it. Brilliant. Um, I, I, I think quite honestly, the way that I would approach it is I would not count my check-ins and I would have another sponsor that is a better fit lined up because sooner or later that chairman or that marketing department is going to get caught out and it's not a good fit. Um, but listen, I would, I would probably write it. I would, honestly, I would, you know, they're, if they're happy, fine, whatever. Um, and I, you know, I'd probably try to do my best to, to make it work. But if the brand isn't the right fit and somebody just buys it for, for shits and giggles and my job is to sell it brilliant you've just done my job for me jackie these days there's a lot of talk about industries being disrupted uber is a great example but there's there's plenty of others do you think that the sponsorship industry is one that can be disrupted yes and i have tried so desperately with my little mouth or my big mouth and little little stature to do as best as i possibly could um yeah it's i think it's really ripe and i think when i said that slingshot seven years ago, you know, I kind of predicted that big brands would pull out of big like sports deals and onto more engaging platforms. And I'm only just seeing that starting to happen now. You know, World Cup doesn't have a sponsor. Rugby doesn't have a sponsor. Um, but I thought this would have happened. Honestly, I thought this would have happened four years ago. 
And because of the lag in that, it has allowed some rights holders to adapt better than others. But I think because it wasn't such a hard hit, you don't really see the innovation that should be coming out of those rights holders. Um, and, and so you're kind of almost seeing like a bit of a slow lag, which is a, a pain really. But I, I, do think, I do think the industry is ripe for disruption. I do think there's a couple of things that I've got in the back of my mind and up my sleeve that I think would very quickly disrupt uh, the industry. And there's, you know, some simple things that just aren't being done, such as standardization in terms of pricing, such as being aware of what other people are selling for, such as, you know, some transparency of what people are buying stuff for. You know, those are, those are simple things that most industries have that ours is not. And because of that, you know, it's all kind of like smoke and mirrors, but it also means that it's not progressing as fast as it should. Jackie, fantastic chat. And as I've mentioned, I invited you on the show after reading your book, Pinpoint, How Challenging the Norm is the Only Route to Success in Selling Sponsorship. So apart from the standard line of available in all good bookstores, where can people get a copy of the book? You can buy it on Amazon. So I, I guess the trick is basically just, just type in pinpoint Jackie Fast and it should come up. It's available everywhere and it comes to you like in two days, which is great. Um, you can also, if you wanted more information about me, I've got a website, www.jackiefast.com. I'm doing book signings kind of all over the world throughout the year and the event dates are usually on the website if I have the chance to update it. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm still doing some speaking gigs for certain clients and stuff. So if you're interested in having me, let me know. And of course, we'll put all those links in the show notes at sponsor.net. And listeners, I'm not much of a book reader at all, but I thoroughly enjoyed the book and it's got lots of highlights and red pen notes all over it. And I found it both easy to really easy to read and relate to and, and full of great advice so jackie fast author sponsorship trailblazer esa board director chair of the esa awards thank you so much for taking us inside your book pinpoint how challenging the norm is the only route to success in selling sponsorship Bob, thank you so much for having me i really enjoyed that Really appreciate Jackie jumping on that call after having only just checked into her hotel room. So much energy and passion and loads of conviction about how we can do sponsorship better and as she said, reach our potential. So if you want to connect with Jackie, just head along to the show notes at sponsor.net where you'll find links to Jackie's website, jackiefast.com, Jackie's LinkedIn profile and of course a link to buy the book which again I highly recommend. Loads of great stories, examples and advice in a format that I found really easy reading. Thanks again for tuning into the show. Just like Jane, Kristen and Adam, if you'd like a shout out, just get in contact. I'll make it happen for you. Seriously, we do love hearing from you. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're working, where you are in the world. Just get in contact and say hi and we'll make sure that we give you a shout out. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponsorv.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponsorv. And of course, if you want to connect with our MD, Mark Thompson, you can email him on mark at sponsorv.net and of course, also find him on LinkedIn. Don't forget, you can follow Sponsorv on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Sponsorv. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs, and resources, head to Sponsorv.net or search for Sponsorv on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. LinkedIn.